Well, praise God. I am 100% overdressed. But the reason I wore a coat today is because it is cold in Maryland. Uh, yesterday, I tried to find me a heater. And uh, I got in uh, Brother Wright's vehicle, Elder Wright, Bishop Wright. He had the air conditioner on. And I was already cold and it was raining outside. We don't know what rain is in Kansas. It rained one time, but it's been several years ago. And uh, I was so glad he was in one of these modern vehicles that you could adjust the temperature on both sides. I had mine on 89. He had his on 69. <laughs> Amen. But I am so glad. I am so glad to be with you today. Uh, Brother Wright, uh, I just thought I had ADHD. He has a double portion. <laughs> and I can tell right now he's not trying to get healed of it. Amen. So I, I thank Brother Wright for uh, allowing me to come uh, to this beautiful place. Uh, I have enjoyed uh, Maryland so immensely, but I hadn't seen any of it. You can't see this place for the trees. I left the hotel a while ago, and, and I drove on the Anne Arundel Tunnel all the way here. You, you can't imagine how psychologically I'm deranged right now. Uh, I've been, I got claustrophobia. Uh, we don't have trees in Kansas. For a fact, the state tree is the telephone pole. Amen. I like, I like to tell this, uh, in western Kansas, you can see things in western Kansas that you can't see anywhere else. 200 miles. You can see a grain elevator as it approaches over the horizon. And uh, it's wide open. Uh, there's no trees. And, uh, and the Democrats love Kansas because there's no bushes. Oh, I, I couldn't resist that up here, praise God. Amen. But it is so, it is so glad. I'm so glad to be here. I want you to turn to five people. And I want you to say, may the blessings of God be upon your life. I want you to tell five people. May the blessings of God be upon your life. Hallelujah. Amen. Now, I want you to do one more thing for me before I let you be seated. Now, I want you to turn to five people. Now, listen to me now. I want you to turn to five people. Look them square in the eye. Shake their hand and say, you are going to get a raise on your job.
Hallelujah. You, you may be seated. You can be seated. If we could get used to blessing people, if we could get used to blessing people instead of cursing people, we'd be a greater nation. And I don't know of anybody that doesn't need a raise, and if you don't need one, you should at least want one. Amen. In the book of Matthew, and you don't have to turn there, I'm just, I'm, I'm not a long-winded preacher. I just preach a long time. Uh, in the book of Matthew, there is a story or a series of stories in chapter 8. And it starts off something like this in chapter 8. When he was come down from the mountain. Now, we don't have mountains in Kansas. Uh, we don't even have hills. We, well, we do have two, but it costs $6 million a piece to build. Uh, but the Bible said that Jesus went up into the mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, and, and beginning at chapter 5, it is known as the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is one of the greatest literary pieces ever written by anyone. It is an ideal way of living for God. And we all have to have something to shoot for. And the first few verses are, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the merciful, and so on. And it's called the Beatitudes. And then he goes from there and he gets more serious. And uh, many people read the Sermon on the Mount, and it really doesn't apply a whole lot to them because they're not living according to Matthew 5, 6, and 7. For instance, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now that sounds pretty good. We want mercy, but we don't like to extend mercy. I love mercy, but I don't necessarily like to be merciful to you. Uh, there's another little passage in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That says, if your right hand offend thee, what does he say do? Now this is not in the Old Testament, this is in the New Testament. So obviously it's written to you. Now would all the one-handed people raise your hand? Everybody here has two hands? But I thought you believe in obeying the Bible. And looking at this crowd, I promise you that your right hand has not always been the most righteous. 
I like the part where it said, if your right eye offend thee, what does he say do to it? Pluck it out. Gouge it out. With all the one-eyed people, would you raise your hand? What's wrong with y'all? I thought y'all believed in obeying the Bible. We got a lot of one-eyed people in Kansas. Maybe it's just because they are worse than you are. The the truth of the matter is that Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is a miniature Old Testament in short form in the New Testament. Jesus, when he was set, opened his mouth and taught them this passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. What a lot of people do not recognize is the fact that Jesus is God manifested in human form. He was the almighty God. Jesus said, I'm the first and the last. I'm the one which is and which was and which is to come, the almighty. Jesus is the great I am. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. But there is an exact example in a different form in the Old Testament. God had brought the Israelites out of Egypt by the mighty hand of God. And they crossed the Red Sea on dry ground and they got to Mount Sinai and God called Moses to the top of the mount. And when you read the story in Exodus chapter 19 and also in Exodus chapter 32, uh, we see the mountain quaking and there was great earthquakes around that mountain. There was a huge cloud that engulfed that mountain. And there was thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And, and in the midst of that cloud, in the midst of that fire, in the midst of that quaking, God spoke to Moses and he gave Moses the Ten Commandments on that mountain. And the Bible said it, it was written by the finger of God on the tables of stone. It was very traumatic. Uh, Moses could not see God, but he experienced God. It was such an awesome uh, situation that the people feared, and, and they stood back, and they weren't allowed to touch that mountain because if they touched that mountain, they would die. And so Moses is on that mountain in the cloud, in the midst of the fire, in the midst of the earthquake. And and God gives him uh, the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue uh, on that mountain uh, that we still revere today and we still live by those Ten Commandments. Can I have an amen? But exactly the same thing happens is when Jesus goes up into this mountain, he did not give us the Ten Commandments, but he clarified the Ten Commandments in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. And that's why he said, it's been said of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, I'm going to explain what I meant. You can't even look upon a woman to lust after her because you've already committed adultery in your heart. And when we read Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, the apostles, uh, there was only 12 men that heard the greatest sermon ever preached. 
I know of preachers, and you know of preachers, uh, that they can't even get anointed unless there's a huge crowd, or, or it's not worth their time going uh, unless there's a huge crowd. But let me tell you something. The most anointed you'll ever be is when you sit at the kitchen table with one couple with the Bible open, and you teach the Word of God. That's the most close to God you'll ever become. Can I have an amen? Uh, in my lifetime, I have taught over 25,000 uh, home Bible studies. Uh, I have been in every kind of home that you can imagine. And so a few years ago, uh, one of my uh, demons, I mean deacons, excuse me, Uh, came to me and said, Pastor, uh, uh, you, you need to kind of, uh, lay down teaching so many Bible studies and, and people's homes, uh, and focus more uh, on the church. And I looked at him and I said, I will give up my pulpit before I give up teaching one or two people because I know when I'm at a kitchen table and I'm teaching the word of God and I'm only 18 inches from your face, I know that's going to be effective. But when I preach to a congregation, you preach and they leave out and they don't never remember what you said. Praise God. Can I have an Amen. And so the Sermon on the Mount was such a holy sermon. It was so sacred. It was the ideal. And the apostles are looking at Jesus kind of cross-eyed saying, Man, what a sermon. I mean, what a man that we're listening to. We're listening to the Almighty God. All oh, praise God. we got to be like Him. And then the truth of the matter is you can't live on top of the mountain. Sooner or later, you gotta come off that mountain, and you gotta live down here in the nasty now and now where everybody else lives. Can I have an amen? And so Jesus comes off of that mountain. Now just imagine for just a moment, uh, what the apostles were thinking when Jesus walks down that mountain with them. Now just think for a moment. You know, uh, he, he's, he's given them the greatest word ever given. And, and they cannot imagine after preaching such a sermon as that, how he's gonna live from this day forward. And so when he comes down off that mountain in chapter uh, 8 and verse 1, when he came down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, not if you can, but if you will, thou can make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now wait just a moment. A holy God giving holy commandments, has the audacity to come off that mountain and he touches the most unclean man in Israel. Now you don't understand what leprosy was and the stigma that followed leprosy. Let me see if I can explain this. If you was diagnosed with leprosy and the priest determined that you had leprosy, you were separated from everybody else. 
everybody is going to know that you are a leper. You can't hide it. For a fact, if you walk down the street and someone approached you, you had to hold out your hand, your right hand, and you had to cry three times, unclean, unclean, unclean. And you say, wow, that leper didn't want anybody else to get leprosy. That's not true. He didn't care whether you got leprosy or not. He was only trying to save his own life because tradition says that if he did not cry unholy, 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 and someone touched him, then that the leper could be stoned to death because he violated the order of the priesthood. And so that leper only cried unholy because in his heart he knew he needed something that others didn't, could not give him. He wanted to live. The law of self-preservation would take over. And he didn't want to be stoned. He said, I'd rather live as a leper than die as a leper. I wonder how many people that we talk to every day. Now, they don't cry unclean, unclean, unclean. But in, I, I can't speak for Maryland or the D.C. area, but I can speak for Wichita. I'm telling you what, in Wichita, it's not like Maryland. We have sinners in Wichita. And I'm going to tell you, there are drug addicts, there are alcoholics, and, and there's two kinds of alcoholics. There's rich alcoholics, and there's poor alcoholics. There's rich sinners, and there's poor sinners. And the difference between a poor sinner and a rich sinner is a rich man has more money to sin with. I mean, I, I know all of y'all are holy, okay? And I know that there's not any sinners in Maryland anywhere. And I know all of you are exactly perfect. But where I'm from, it's not that way. And you can usually tell what a person is by just walking down the street. We, we run 25 buses in our church. And we bring from 700 to 1200 children to church every Sunday. And, and, and one of the largest ministries in our church is our bus ministry. And uh, we don't go, we don't run our buses uh, uh, on Silk, Stock, and Hill. But we run our buses in the ghettos. We run our buses in the projects. We run our buses in the poor neighborhoods. I mean, everybody else has got to ride to church. They got their automobiles and they got uh, their means. But a lot of these children that have alcoholic families and, and drug addicted families and their children are raised in such a way that when they get out of school on Friday afternoon, they will not eat again until Monday at noon when they get back to school. When we pick our children up on buses, the first thing we do when we get to church is we feed them. And a lot of these children ride our buses just so they can get something to eat. 
And you know what? It, it's almost like these children are holding out their hand saying, unclean, unclean, unclean. In Wichita, Kansas, we have 775 churches within the city limits of Wichita, Kansas. Now, I don't know about Maryland, but some of the richest churches in the world are in Wichita, Kansas. Some of the richest people in America live in Wichita, Kansas. And and yet, when you drive by uh, these beautiful buildings and magnificent edifices, uh, there are no buses in the parking lot. And, and there's no soup kitchens uh, in their church. Uh, and it's almost like uh, that the, the children have raised up their hand and saying, unclean, unclean. Uh, and you walk across uh, on the other side of the road uh, to keep them touching these people. But when Jesus came off that mountain uh, and he preached the holiest sermon that he'd ever preached in his life, he said, now I'm going to demonstrate what I'm talking about. you got to be able to touch the person that nobody else will touch. I feel the Holy Ghost. I'm going to tell you, I feel the Holy Ghost. I'm going to tell you, this church is not made for the righteous man. It's made for the unrighteous man. This church was not made for the whole man. It's made for the sick man. And the world is crying, unclean, unclean. But that doesn't mean that we got to separate from the world and ignore them. we got to be able to touch the unclean man. Jesus, in chapter 8 and chapter 9, is going to demonstrate the holiest sermon ever preached. Look at the next thing. In chapter 8 and verse number 5. I like this. And when Jesus entered into Capernaum. There came unto him. A Roman general. A centurion. Beseeching him and saying. Lord. My servant. Lieth at home sick of the palsy. Grievously tormented. Now. Let me put this in some modern vernacular for just a moment. This is a terrible passage of scripture. If I was a liberal, I would say this doesn't belong in God's Bible. I'd tear it out. What do you mean? First of all, it speaks of slavery. The centurion the high and lofty Roman soldier. He wasn't just a private. This man owned servants. Y'all getting quiet. All I'm doing is reading the Bible. You believe the Bible? Okay. He is the most hated Man in Israel. You know, the, the Israelites are the Jewish people in Palestine. They hated the centurion almost as much as we hate the IRS. And if you don't have, if you don't have a hatred for the IRS, you're not even alive. It's my favorite people to curse. 
if you love to pay taxes, would you please move to Wichita? You'd be a freak. The centurion was a hated man. Number one, it was Roman occupation of Palestine. The man owned some Jewish servants. He was the ruling authority over his province. Nobody liked the Roman centurion. And he has this servant. And it becomes sick. Nobody can heal him. And so the centurion, who is in authority over Christ, over the Jews, has the power to put people in jail, goes to Jesus. And he said, Lord, I have a servant. And he's sick. I need a healing for him. And Jesus said, I will come and heal him. And all of a sudden, there is a stark reaction on the part of this high and lifted up centurion soldier. This man that is in authority over Christ. He's in authority over his province. He's in authority over that area. He said, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. He said, he said, I am not worthy that you should come into my house. I am a man of authority. If I say to this one, go, he goes. If I say, come, he comes. He said, all you've got to do, Christ, is speak the word. And the Lord looks at that crowd and he looks at the 12 disciples those that have heard the holiest of all sermons and he says I have not found so great a faith nowhere in Israel and the Bible says the servant was healed from that moment forward here's the point I'm trying to make just because we have personal hatred for people doesn't mean that Jesus hates the people you hate Well, since you didn't take an offering, I'm not going to ruin the offering. So I'm going to preach what I want to preach, okay? You know, we all have our selected people that we hate. Come on now. Some of you are grinning like a possum eating sawbriars. We all have our favorite person that we love to hate. Can I have an amen? And in our church, we have we have a dysfunctional church. I promise you, we are the most dysfunctional church in Kansas. For a fact, we are the most unholy church in Kansas. And the reason I know that is that's what people tell us. Because we let everybody come to the house of God. In our church. I tell people all the time. I had a man that I went to this past Sunday. He just started coming to our church. 
He was a hellion. He was worse than that. And he came to the altar and started praying. And uh, I could tell people was kind of shying away from him because of his reputation around town. And I went to him and I said, hey, let me talk to you a minute. Held out my hand. He shook my hand. I said, I'm going to make a deal with you. He said, what kind of deal? I said, I won't be ashamed of you if you won't be ashamed of me. He smiled real big. He said, I'll never be ashamed of you. I said, you haven't seen me preach too much yet. (laughs) I was preaching the Arkansas camp meeting. 3,500 people was there, almost 4,000. And uh, I preached on Monday night, and I preached on Tuesday night, and I preached on Wednesday night. Man, we was we was a bunch of holy rollers. Woo! We hucked and bucked and done the whirly bird. That's what that's what you do at camp meeting, you know. I mean, we shouted, we talked in tongues, we ran the aisle, we danced in the Holy Ghost. People got healed. There was people getting the Holy Ghost everywhere. Thursday night. Bill Clinton walked in. We invited him to sit on the platform. And so he came up on the platform and sit with us dignitaries. He brought an entourage with him from Hollywood. And we invited his Hollywood movie stars to sit on the platform with us. And and all during that service, you'd think that the only song we knew was Amazing Grace and Half Speed. <laughs> they drugged that service out. They didn't sing one thing that you could tap your feet with or clap your hands. All you want to do is say, The superintendent, I'm not going to call his name. Brother Lumpkin reached over and he said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Brother Lumpkin said, now Cornwell, he didn't call me Brother Cornwell. He didn't call me Bishop. He didn't call me Elder. He didn't call me Brother. He said, Cornwell, we've got guests here tonight. And you better behave yourself. That's like saying sickum to a dog. And then he said, I know you preach an hour, but he said, we're only going to give you 30 minutes tonight. And they drug it out until it was 30 minutes to finishing time. They got up and introduced me. I walked up the pulpit. And I said, Mr. Clinton, you are a powerful man. I didn't realize how powerful he was. I I said, I said, for for four days, we have been holy rollers, tongue talkers, one God, Jesus' name, apostolic, hallelujah. And I said, you've done something that I wished I could do. 
And you have converted 3,500 people just by walking in here. I said, you have turned 3,500 holy rollers into Methodists just by walking in. And I said, there's 3,501 people in this room and you have converted 3,500 of them. But you ain't converting me. I ripped my coat off and I started preaching and I climbed up. Oh my God, forgive me. I climbed up on top of the pulpit. I'm standing on top of the pulpit. I rolled my sleeves up. I throw my jacket out in the congregation and me and the devil had a fight on top of that pulpit. I said, I'm going to show you, Mr. Clinton, that I'm as powerful as you are and I'm going to convert 3,500 Methodists back into Holy Rollers tonight. And about that time, the Holy Ghost fell in that place. When I got through preaching, when I got through preaching, I looked over and the Hollywood crowd was underneath the pew on the platform. And I looked and I thought, oh my God, I'd run run Bill Clinton out of the house. And I got to looking for him. He was laying underneath the front row, repenting and crying his eyes out. And when he got through, he crawled up on that pew and he hugged me and he said, that's exactly what I needed tonight. Uh, Let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. You may hate somebody, but God doesn't hate them. And you better quit hating what God loves. And God loves the human race. He's demonstrating the sermon that because the world hates people, that doesn't mean he hates people. And the church cannot afford to hate anybody. Can I have an amen? Let me, give me just a few more minutes. In the 14th verse of chapter 8. I'd like you, if you've got a Bible, if y'all put it on the screen, I don't know if you do it. If you look, look at chapter 8 and verse 14. Has anybody here got a brother-in-law? Would you raise your hand? All right. If you've got a mother-in-law, would you raise your hand? Oh, some of you are either lying or you want to own up to it. I want you to watch this. Now I'm preaching to us right now. When Jesus was come into Peter's house, he saw, it doesn't say they saw, but it says he saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever. Lock your seatbelt. We are going to experience a little bit of turbulence right here. This, when God revealed this verse to me, it spoke deep into my heart. I remember when my wife and I got married, everybody was for the marriage except my wife's mother. 
That's called a mother-in-law. Now, when I was young, I was very opinionated. Can you imagine? For a fact, most preachers are opinionated. Have you ever noticed that? What I didn't understand was my mother-in-law had a different opinion. I thought I was a fine, upstanding young man. I thought I was very intelligent, able to make beautiful decisions. I've changed my mind since then, but back then. My mother-in-law had a different opinion. She said, you're arrogant. And that's some of the nicer words she used. When I asked my father-in-law and my mother-in-law if I could marry my wife, and we still do that where I'm from, and we don't just drive up in the driveway and honk our horn and our girlfriend comes out. We have to go in and we have to meet mother and dad. We have to have a bouquet of flowers to give to her mother. Boy, y'all missed a good sermon right there. The first time a boy drives up my driveway and honks his horn for my daughter to come out, I'm coming out first. And I got a double barrel shotgun with a barrel cut off. Ain't no way he's going to get loose. I got a little granddaughter, seven, uh, well, she's 20 years old now, but she was about 18 or 19. And, and she sits with my wife on the second row. My wife has sat on the second row for 41 years, right there. And somehow, every hair-legged boy in the church started coming over wanting to sit by my wife. And my little granddaughter, she's a little short, petite girl. She's about four foot nine. And she's pretty as a speckled pup. And she's very kind and nice. And just, she, she is the only perfect person that I know. And I saw three or four boys eyeballing her. I walked up to them. I said, boys, y'all come here. I said, you see that little girl on the second row beside my wife? Yep. I said, I'm sure that y'all are not coming over here to see her, that y'all are coming over here to sit with my wife. But just in case you're looking the wrong direction, I said, you touch this girl in an inappropriate way. I will rip your head off of your shoulder. I will hold you up by your hair until you bleed out. And then I'll throw your head in the trash bucket. One of them boys, hey, I'm, I'm 68 years old, okay? One of them boys said, yeah, you'll go to jail too. I said, don't threaten me with a good retirement program. Somehow, they felt led to transfer to the other side of the church, which I was very glad for. My mother-in-law 
did not like me at all. It took me five hours before she finally, reluctantly, with a lot of pressure, and me sitting there with a six-gun strapped on my hip, to convince her to let me marry her daughter. And if she had one opinion about something, I had the opposite. And if I had an opinion about something, she took the opposite. And then if she convinced me that she was right and I joined her opinion, she changed her opinion. It was, it was war. You have to understand my mother-in-law and father-in-law were sharecroppers. And, and they, they made a living on a 26 acre cotton farm. They were very, they were very poor and, uh, and, and, and even the poor people called them poor. But yet, I wanted to marry their daughter. We got married. I'm traveling. Well, they had an old Ford pickup truck that was wore out. And it finally gave up the ghost. And they did not have a vehicle. They were very faithful to the house of God. They cleaned the church every week. They mowed the grass. If the chicken laid ten eggs, the preacher got an egg. If the hog had ten pigs, the preacher got a pig. If the dog had ten puppies, the preacher got a puppy. If the cat had ten kittens, the preacher wouldn't take it. And so I was praying in Stockton, California, and I found out that my mother-in-law and father-in-law did not have a vehicle. And it was their only transportation to church. And I told my wife, I said, I can't have this. i got to change my attitude. I said, your mother and father have been very good to us, even though I don't like your mother. They've been good to us. And so I started praying, and I found a brand-new automobile. Brand new. It only had a few miles on it. It was a it was a, a Chevy Vega. Brand new. And it had the aluminum block motor. And, and the first week the people had it, the motor melted. And they put it in the barn and left it there. And they advertised it. So I went to see them. And I said... You want to sell that car? And they said, yes. I said, how much do you want for it? They said, we'll take $850 for the automobile just like it sits. I said, $850 for a brand new car. I bought that old car and I drove it to where I was staying and I could tell there was something wrong with the motor. I took it to a mechanic. He said, yes, this motor is no good. It's got to be replaced. And I bought a brand new motor and put in that automobile, paid $500 for a brand new motor and, 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 and I saw a little ad in the paper, just a couple of lines, where General Motors was replaced those engines. I called General Motors. They sent me a check back for $500. And I had a brand new car. It was air conditioning, automatic transmission. It, it was souped up Vega. And my wife and I drove from California all the way home. I pulled in there in a yard, and I said, Mama, come here. And I took my mother-in-law by the hand. And I took her out to the car, and I gave her the keys, and I gave her the signed title. And I said, I want you to know we bought you a car. And she said, you bought me a car? I said, yes. 
She said, this is a brand new car. I said, I know it is. I said, it's yours. It's paid for. She said, you bought me a car? I said, yes. And she started crying. And I started crying. (laughs) And she reached over and she grabbed me and she hugged me. Oh, my God, I had to reach over and hug her. (laughs) That woman became the biggest fan that I have ever had. Because I changed my attitude about somebody I ought to have been loving in the first place. How many people in our families that we ignore because we have an ignorant difference with them? And we don't ever invite them to church. And we don't ever bring them to a place where we can minister to them because of our attitude. You see, we're blind to our own attitudes. Peter and, and, and the apostles walked right by mother-in-law that was sick and needed somebody to minister to her. And Jesus was the only one that recognized that she had a need. I believe that our churches right now could double if we would open our minds and open our hearts and realize there's people all around us that if somebody reaches out and just ministers to them in any way, Well, I've quietened this crowd. I want to cover one more. Oh, my goodness. My time is way gone. But you're not going anywhere else, so let me finish here. (laughs) Chapter 8 and verse 23. He enters into the ship. His disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the sea was, the ship was covered with waves, and he was asleep. And his disciples came to him and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. He saith unto them, Why are you so fearful? O ye of little faith. Then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. Now, You can believe this or not. It's your option, but if you don't believe it, you've been wrong before. Jesus created that storm because the disciples were on their way to Gadara. Gadara was a seaport on the lake. It was an important place. It was a place where all the fancy restaurants were. It was a cultural center for that part of Galilee. And, and when they got in that ship, they were on their way to the, the port at Gadara. But the storm came. And they, Jesus is asleep in the boat. And, and, and they got scared. And they woke him up and said, don't you care that we perish? He said, oh, you of little faith. He said, this is not really a storm. But this is the rudder that's taking me where I want to go instead of where you're wanting to go. And many times when you have a storm in your life, you're going one direction and the Lord's trying to blow you in a different direction. Just put put that in your pipe and smoke it a moment, okay? Every storm that comes into your life, it may be God's way of redirecting your life 
Because if you go where you want to go, you're going to end up shipwrecked. But if you go where he goes, he'll calm the storm. And the ship has blown them off course and they land way south of the town of Gadara in the graveyard. And that's where Jesus wanted to go. He wanted to go to the graveyard, not the port. And when he gets out of the boat, the demoniac man from Gadara, the man that nobody could tame, the man that everybody was afraid of. The man that nobody had any dealings with. The man that was naked. He had fetters on that he had broken. He was a wild maniac. And he runs up to Jesus and said, Why have you come here to torment me before my time? But you see, He's not like the other men that have tormented him. This is a different man. And Jesus looked at that demoniac and commands the demons to come out of him. And the legion of demons leave that demoniac man. And he's clothed and in his right mind. Everybody else is afraid of him. Nobody else wants to have anything to do with him. Can I have an amen? I'll give you an example, and I'm going to close with this. I, I had taught a Bible study a number of years ago uh, to a group, and uh, this man and woman had been in that Bible study, and his wife did not want to make any changes in her life, and so uh, she forced her husband out of that Bible study. And I had, I had not seen them in over 10 years. One day I get a call from this wife. And she said, Brother Cornwell, I know you know who this is. And I said, yes, I do. And she said, I realized that I pulled my husband and I out of that Bible study 10 years ago. But when I did that, I didn't realize what our life was going to bring for the next 10 years. This man went wild. This man was kind of like the demon of Gadara. Nobody liked him. Everybody hated him. They had no friends. They had no fellowship. They, 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 were, they were so set apart from everybody else because, because everybody just thought, well, he's full of devils and that's all there is to it. We don't want to have anything to do with it. Let me tell you something. There's a lot of people are putting on a big show and people are afraid of them. But if they ever get converted, they'll make the greatest children of God that you've ever seen. Ladies and gentlemen, we're living in 2018. We're closer to the coming of the Lord today than we've ever been. Our world is rocking and reeling. Look at the hatred that's in America. Look at the division that's all around us. In the, poli in the political world, there's hatred and strife. And it's getting down into our homes. And there's strife everywhere. And it's even getting to our churches. And you can't go and have fellowship with anybody. Because everybody hates everybody. Jesus is the prince of peace. He doesn't care who you hate, but you're not going to make him hate who you hate. 
And I said, okay, what do you want me to do? She said, would you, would you come teach us a Bible study again? And I said, okay, under one condition. This time, you've got to sit through the Bible study with us till I get finished. And she agrees. So I go to their home, and when I went to their home, I was not expecting what I saw. It was a mansion. It's probably a seven or 8,000 square foot home. It's decorated with all the latest antiques. It's one of the most beautiful, gorgeous homes I've ever been in. And in that beautiful home, there was so much turmoil that you cannot enjoy anything around you. And so the first time I went to Bible study, and we sat at their table, and he sat at the end of the table. He had a pair of cut-off white jeans they come up way high, and then they were ripped up the side <laughs> on both sides, and a thread kept the front half hung on to the back half. He's hairy all over like an ape. He's got this wild demeanor about him. And, 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 and to be honest with you, he was married to a very nice-looking woman. But that's the only place she was nice looking was in her face because she was as mean as he was. No wonder people didn't like him. If you're going to be have friends, show yourself friendly. And you, you deserve the kind of friends you got. If you got wild, mean friends, it's because you're wild and mean. Just a little meddling there, okay? I'm teaching him a Bible study. He comes to Bible study with a, a fifth of Jack Daniels. And I know y'all are holy. Y'all don't know what Jack Daniels is. With a carton of cigarettes and, and a, a glass full of ice. He's constantly pouring liquor in the glass and sucking up cigarettes. He's the only fellow that can suck a cigarette down in, in one draw. <laughs> He gets drunk quicker than anybody I've ever had in a Bible study before. He's mean as a devil. And I agree to teach him a Bible study. It's not long in that Bible study. I asked him one day, I said, Bob, why do you drink during Bible study? He said, because preachers make me nervous. And I, I'm teaching him several weeks and he followed me out to the car one night, and he said, he said, listen, preacher, when when we, we get through tonight, we're going to lay in bed, and we're going to talk about this Bible study the rest of the night. But by Monday morning, everything we've heard is gone. The birds of the air have come and devoured all the seed. And I said, let me teach you every day at noon in your office. He said, no, let me come to your office, and you teach me every day at noon in your office. And every day, Monday through Friday, he came to my office, and I taught him Bible study. And on Saturday, I taught his family. And I did that for eight weeks, five days a week at my office on Saturday in their home. I, I, I've, got, I've got 48 lessons in him. And, 
and he still got this demeanor. He comes in on Thursday night and, and, and he's shaking all over and he's about to have a nervous breakdown. And we go in my office and I shut the door and I said, Bob, kneel on my floor. And he just hit his knees. And I laid my hands on him and I said, in the name of Jesus, I command you devil to come out of him. Well, where's the assistant pastors when you need them? All of a sudden, that devil come out screaming, and I cast 23 demons out of him. And when I got through casting the last one out, I was wringing wet with sweat, and, and he laid over on my floor like a dead man. And I thought, oh, my God. The paper gets a hold of this. Preacher kills businessman in office. And, and, and when he came to, he shook himself and he said, what happened? I said, I'll explain to you later, but I think God has just healed you. He got up and got in his XJ6 Jaguar and was going back downtown on the freeway. He pulls over to the side of the road and and he called me at 6 o'clock that evening. He said, Pastor, let me tell you what happened. He said, I was on my way back to work. And something came in my car. And I can't explain it. But he said, it's the same thing I've been feeling in your office every day. And he said, he said I'm, I'm sitting there in my car. And I'm scared. And I'm shaking all over. And he said, I, I don't have anything to lose. And I, I raised my hands like this. And I said, praise the Lord. Glory to God. Hallelujah. And he said, I just started sitting there saying, Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Glory to God. But he said, it's, it quit coming out. Praise the Lord. I said, what did it sound like? He said, it sounded like gibberish. It sounded like strange words. God baptized him with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. The world may be afraid of people, but in the name of Jesus, uh, there's some mean people out there that need the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Let's all stand together. We need to demonstrate uh, the Sermon on the Mount. We need to demonstrate tomorrow what we learned here today. We need to demonstrate our lives uh, before the world after we get it on Sunday. Can I have an amen? amen? If Jesus can demonstrate his sermon by saying, yes, I preached a holy sermon to you. But that holy sermon won't prevent you from talking to the demon of Gadara. It won't prevent you from talking to your relatives. It won't prevent you from talking to the unclean man. It won't prevent you from talking to people that everybody else hates. God wants us. To demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's lift our hands and praise the Lord right now. Hallelujah. If you're in this place this morning, and I'm not sure how you do an altar call, uh, Brother Wright, but I just feel led 
that we need to make a commitment to Christ this morning and say, God, I want to be used of the Holy Spirit. I want God to use me. I want to reach somebody for the Lord. If you'd like to make a commitment with me, come and stand here at the front with me right now. Step out that aisle and say, Lord, I want to be used of God. I want the Lord to demonstrate his life in me right now. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's lift our hands and praise him while they're coming right now. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. I praise God. I praise God. I praise God. I praise God. Let's just praise the Lord here right now. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Come on, this is not just a response to appease your emotions, but you're making a cry and a dedication to God. God, I've heard your word. I've heard the man of God speak today, and it's pricked my heart. Now, God, I want to take your word and not just be a hearer of your word, but I want to be a doer of your word. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah, Father. You see every person standing in here today, God. Every person that's standing before us and everyone that's standing wherever they are in this room today. God, you see every person that's in our life. I pray in the name of Jesus, open our eyes that we can see what you see. Let us feel what you feel. Let us not see through the lens of our own ideas, our lens of our own feelings, but God, let us see as you see. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I speak it right now. In the name of Jesus. 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 Come on, we're in a body of believers together. Would you take just a moment, reach over next to somebody, take them by the hand and put your hand on the shoulder and say, Lord, give us the strength to do this together. Come on, we're not doing this on our own. We're doing this together. We got brothers and sisters standing beside us today that are making the same commitment as we are. Come on, they're making the same commitment we are. We're doing this together. We're not doing this on our own. We're doing this together. In the name of Jesus. 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 Oh, in the name of Jesus. 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 Let it be, Father, in your name. Let it be, Father, in your name. I speak an activation of this word in the hearts and lives of people in this room right now. I speak an activation of this word. God, let this let it be a word that falls in the hardness of our heart. But God, let this be a word that gets down into the soil of our heart. Lord, in the name of Jesus.